pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. As we celebrate the Reformation, we reach back 500 years or so to Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The hymn's text, or inspiration, Psalm 46, draws us back even further. The superscription of the psalm reads in part, For the music director belonging to the sons of Korah, in 1 Chronicles 6 we read, These are the men, the sons of Korah, whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord. The poet's context and worldview were quite different from Luther's or from our own. Like God's Old Testament people in general, the poet believed that God was actively in control of all things. No one was beyond the gaze of his eye or the reach of his hand. Upon reflection, we soon realize that God's active omnipotence, a term we don't use often anymore, is either good news or bad news, depending upon what God feels about us at any given moment. But the obvious line of questioning this observation raises does not seem to bother the poet. He expresses no doubt concerning where he stands before God. He knows his status. The same cannot be said for the early Luther. He did not question God's omnipotence. No, for Luther, the young monk, the burning question was, how can I be sure that I have a gracious God? Every day, Luther walked in and out of the black cloister through a doorway that had a bas-relief of Christ the Judge above it. And out of one side of Luther's mouth came a sword, a sword that seemed poised to fall on his head. He had a grinding sense of being utterly lost. Anfaktung was his word for it. Kittleson translates this troublesome German word as the idea of swarming attacks of doubt that could convince people that God's love was not for them. But that was before the tower experience that Luther describes in his preface to the German Latin writings. At last, Luther reflected, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of these words. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise through open gates. A mighty fortress was likely penned about a decade later, between 1527 and 1529, the period of the, the church visitations, the time when the old, large, and small catechisms were prepared. And the hymn resounds with the confidence of the ancient poet, Psalm 46. In our day, we have reduced Luther's question even further, dropping gracious from the inquiry. Our culture asks simply, is there God? Which more and more the answer shifts from, I don't know, to simply no. An atheistic worldview dominates the academy. A godless origin of creation and of all life is taught as a proven science, the non-existence of God is the functional premise of the post-Christian culture in which we live and into which we must speak the truth of Psalm 46. 
obviously I'm not preaching to the choir here. You stand in open defiance to the winds of culture, singing with enthusiasm, a mighty fortress is our God, whether masked or unmasked. We readily affirm the words of our song. God is for us a refuge and strength. As a help in troubles, he is readily found. Therefore, we will not fear when the earth shakes and when the mountains rock in the heart of the sea. We can even boldly shout, as long as it remains only theoretical, let its waters roar and roil. Let the mountains tremble in its swelling. But is that really the case? The striking confidence of the poet as a help in troubles, he is readily found, begs the question, how can he be so sure that God is on his side? Where is God readily found in times of trouble? Where is he when husband and wife quarrel and the marriage bond is stretched to the limit? Where is he when the diagnosis is cancer and the prognosis is grim? Where is he in the unemployment line? Where is God when fear grips you? In 1975, Roger Hart conducted a study on where children felt safe to play. He focused on 86 children between the ages of 3 to 12 in a small town in Vermont. Hart would follow the kids throughout the day, documenting everywhere the children went by themselves. He then took that information and made physical maps, drew it out on the map of its city, and measured the distance each child was allowed to go by themselves and what the average was for each age group. Hart discovered, now this is 1975, remember, that these kids had remarkable freedom. Even four- and five-year-olds traveled unsupervised throughout the neighborhoods. And by the time they were 10, most kids had to run the entire town. And their parents weren't concerned about it. Several years ago, 2014, he went back to that same town to document the children of the children that he had originally tracked in the 70s. And we asked the new generation of kids to show them where they played alone when he found Florida. Hart said, they just didn't have very far to take me. Just walking around the property, the backyard, was the limit of their world. In other words, this huge circle of freedom on the maps had grown very tiny. Hart added, there's no free-range outdoors. Even when kids are older, parents now say, I need to know where you are at all times. Sound familiar? But what's odd about all this is that the town is no more dangerous than it was 40 years ago. There's no more reported crime there. So why has the invisible leash between parent and child tightened so much? Hart says it was absolutely clear from his interviews the reason was fear. And here's the conclusion to his new study. Fear of the world outside our doors narrows the circle of our lives. The fear of the world outside, the fear of the world behind masks, focuses the question raised by the sun. Where is God readily found in this pandemic? How is he a refuge and strength when we're out of work? Abstractions are no comfort, no solution in the concrete situations of human need. The confident voice of Psalm 46 sounds very different from Psalm 22. God, God, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? 
in their suffering, in their fear, these all wonder where God is. The poet of Psalm 46 answers confidently and reassuringly by naming a place, a river. It streams gladly the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in her midst. She will not be rocked. God will help her at the break of day. But how do these, how do these words help? The key is the holy habitation of the Most High. The place where God has chosen for his name to dwell. That, plus another story that John records for us. It was Passover. And Jesus has come to Jerusalem, to the temple, that place where God's name dwells. Jesus comes and his righteous anger explodes. A whip cracks. Coins dance across the stone floors of the courtyard. Pigeons fly in wild confusion. And John offers a, a little bit of autobiographical reflection. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the pivotal exchange between Jesus and the Jews who demand, what sign do you show us for doing these things? To which Jesus replies, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The place, the holy habitation of the Most High, has become a person. Already in the prologue, John has alerted us to the truth of Jesus' divinity, declaring that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Psalm 46 speaks to us when we see that the holy habitation of the Most High no longer names a place but a person. In Jesus, God is present for his people. He is a help that is readily found, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead. Jesus began to restore creation to the perfection of the garden. Simply being around him was to experience God's merciful presence. But his greatest act of mercy would come on the cross. When he was raised up, as he spoke to the crowds three years later, when again he came to Jerusalem. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will this ruler, ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He died and was buried. And with him our sins were buried in that tomb. But truly God's help came at the break of day. It came when Jesus burst forth from the tomb that first Easter morning, declaring, You are redeemed, and your life is hidden in me. At the break of day. Every Sunday is a little Easter. The poet's expression brings us full circle, inviting us to recall God's gracious presence in every circumstance. The Hebrew expression now translated at the break of day or when morning comes in the ESV is a very unique phrase. Besides the poet, only Moses uses it, and he only once. All night, the children of Israel had hurried across the dry seabed. Over a million strong, their little ones dictating their snail's pace. Their anxiety, the urgency of their situation between the towering walls of water on either side grew as the clattering of Pharaoh's chariots became louder and louder. Snatches of shouts urging the horses on, caught on the wind. Then, in the morning, watch, 
Yahweh in the pillar of fire looked down and followed the wheels. And at the break of day, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course. Come, behold the works of Yahweh, the devastations he has put on the earth. But let us leave the terrors of war and our struggles in this life to focus on another watery scene that John also records for us. There is water at the bottom of Jacob's well. The woman from Sarkar knows that. But this Jewish rabbi doesn't have a bucket. Yet Jesus offers her living water, welling up to eternal life. Living water included in God's command and combined with God's word, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. You are mine, that water of baptism declares, as it gathers the people around the person and work of Jesus. A river. It streams glad in the city of God. The city of God no longer names a geographical place. It names a people. The church, Christ's church, gathered from the furthest ends of the earth from countless centuries. As the temple was in the midst of Jerusalem, so the people of God gathered around the word proclaimed, the watery word of baptism, the bloody word of the Lord's table. Gathered, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, as the writer to the Hebrews urges us. Gathered around, the only refuge, the only mighty fortress given to us, the cross of Christ and the open tomb. Very early in the morning, the women went, but he was not there. God gave us the victory at the break of day. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Amen. Now may, this, now may the Lord guard you and keep you, keep our thoughts and minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.